Hi everyone, this is the Hearsay Podcast. Thanks for listening and thank you so much for all your lovely comments that I've been getting from you. I really love hearing from you all. Uh, If you like, if it's the kind of thing that you're into, you can go and review this podcast officially on the iTunes store website thing. Um, Only if you're into it, obviously no pressure. Um, Please keep emailing me or uh, Facebooking me. I do really love uh, to hear what you think. My guest today is Phil Jamison, who you would know from the band Grinspoon. Phil is in Brisbane at the moment rehearsing the musical American Idiot, which he will be performing at QPAC. And we talk a little bit about that in our chat as well. I can't wait to go see him perform in this musical. I think he's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be a treat. So get along if you're in Brisbane. Uh, Phil's story is illustrated by my lovely friend Danielle. You can check out more of her photos and drawings on Instagram at Manny Manny Mano, which is M-A-N-I-M-A-N-I-M-A-N-O. No spaces. Again, a bit of a language warning on this one. Uh, maybe make sure you're not listening with kids. Okay, here we go. Hearsay podcast number nine, Phil Jamison. Thanks so much for coming to my house. It's a really nice house. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to be spending Valentine's Eve with you. I didn't even think about that, <laughs> but when I first arrived here, your dog vomited <laughs> yeah. right in front of me. So it's a beautiful way to welcome Valentine's into my Brisbane home at this yeah. point in time. That, I was just saying that's the biggest vomit I've ever seen come out of that dog. It was it, like, oh, filthy. It was really gross. <laughs> It was gross. My dog is smaller than your dog and does smaller vomits. And I, I'm sympathetic to dogs vomiting, I'll be honest, but that was gnarly. That was really yeah. gross. I did ask you not to look at it, but well, it was too late. It's like saying don't look at anything. Don't you look at the sun. You just immediately look at it and you go, oh, my God, you were right. You were right, Sarah. Anyway. So sorry about that. It's okay. It can only go up from here, really. Hopefully. <laughs> so you're in Brisbane at the moment rehearsing for a musical that you're doing. I'm doing some musical theatre for the first time since high school. Amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs> How's it going? Uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. It is. I'm surrounded by, I guess, young people that are triple threats, all of them. They can yeah. sing, they can dance, yeah. they can act. And they're all pretty, I bet. They're all, they're all gorgeous and they're, they're, they're very, like, they're going to win multiple Helpmans. You know yeah. that in the future because it's yeah. a very young cast. And you look at them and you're like, Chris Cheney and I are sharing the role. So Chris and I get there and we may have got slightly intoxicated the night before <laughs> or not. But anyway, you get there and you've got a bleary eye and you're looking at this going, they don't hit a bum note. Like literally they can do seven-part harmonies. And Amazing. I scratch my head. I'm like, how do I make this work? And yeah. so my first ever run through was, I think it was on Thursday or Friday last week and it was just a, a terrifying ordeal. <laughs> For me. How did you go? Well, I put my hand on the wrong rail and then, oh, then no. I got mixed up. Then I forgot my line. Then I didn't do this bit when I meant to scare them. And then <laughs> I'm like, oh, God. So I had to really – I was in the car park today at the hotel I'm staying at. Like I'm in like a, 
underground car park walking through the role as a walkthrough because yeah. I can sing it okay yeah. and I know m- most of the lyrics but it's actually the physicality yeah. of the role and then also acting while you're f- being physical. So and when was the last time you acted in high school? Yeah, I think it was like uh, I did Joseph in the major technical drink but I was Joseph, I was a big deal. Yeah, right. But it was still high school musical. Like it wasn't. It wasn't anything of great importance. And uh, so, so yes, it's it's exciting, but also really daunting and yeah. great to be challenged in this way. Exactly. In my, I guess, at my age, number one, it's really flattering to be asked to do it. I've been talking a lot to people in this podcast about when was the last time you actually did something super challenging and. Well, it's so now. rare, especially when you know when you get a bit older and you're used to playing gigs and writing your own songs and playing those. Well, you know, the last time we played together, which was only about three weeks ago, what was challenging is I split my pants on stage, <laughs> and so I was playing basically an all ages gig in Brisbane River Stage for the Greatest Australian Bites Festival. Yeah, Dan Kelly went on before me. He was amazing. I get up, do what I do. Get you're off stage. A, you're get, amazing. Come on. Thank you. Get get off stage. Do what I do. Get off stage and like decide to get in the crowd, get back on stage and then realise halfway up I've split all the back of my pants, all the back, and I don't have anything underneath my pants. And there are literally seven to 11-year-olds in the crowd. So I'm about to be arrested, just singing away going, yep, 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 thank you very much and good night. And I run off stage and I'm like, no one could see, but yes, it was... uh, that's that was a, a bit of a disaster. That's a wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Jack London, send me some pants. <laughs> Ridiculous. I did inspect the area and it was you couldn't see it at all. But when you're up there and when there yeah. are young people in front of you, you don't really know what's going on. Yeah. You're just like, yeah, you know, this could have turned out really badly. So I just yeah. kind of held it all knees together, <laughs> legs together and just sun- – it was right near the end of the set. It was the last song so yeah. luckily it was okay. But- Regurgitator told me lots of stories about when they are in the bubble and they would, you know, wake up in the morning and have like a whole group of – like a whole volleyball team of 11-year-olds just looking at their <laughs> pants. <laughs> really? That was that really weird literally one of the weirdest experiments of all time and I still love them for it in lots of ways. But yeah. yes, it's crazy. Um, so tell me more about uh, how how are you finding it now? You've had a few rehearsals. Are you finding it like you're getting your head around it? I have had a lot less time on stage than Chris, the living end guitarist famous for singing White Noise. So he <laughs> has had way more time than I have on stage. And so I've had, I think, maybe six to seven run-throughs and he's probably had 24. So I think that I just need a little more stage time yeah. and then I'll figure it out. And there's things that we do incredibly differently just as because we're different people. Yeah, Chris that's and the I. beauty of it. Uh, I, hopefully that's beautiful. <laughs> um, but, yes, I am on stage tomorrow from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. just running through hopefully all of the stuff that I have to do. It's what, yeah. what's required of me. Um, and I think I'm getting it slowly. I just want to be a bit more confident in all the stuff, all the staging and the singing, and then I can get into character a little bit more. But, yeah. Are you playing guitar as well? I do play a little bit of guitar because uh, Chris was there before me. He's just like, well, Chris thinks he's a great guitarist. <laughs> well, that's because he is. He is. Uh, he's one of the best <laughs> guitarists in the world. So it would be stupid for him not to play guitar. So I am... 
in by default playing guitar in the in the piece. But yeah, it's nothing. It's A D E, so I think I can handle it. Yeah, that's that's all <laughs> right. Okay. It's not yeah. too hard. It's not too hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, how's Chris going with American Idiot? We've had many fights. Do you fight normally with? Oh, uh, we're a bit like Hale and Pace. Okay. All like those two grumpy guys in the Muppets. Like we're just. <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly outgoing and exuberant type of person. Yeah, and he's very yeah, reserved and he's very thoughtful. Thinks about everything. So we're just, yeah. we're kind of we're, we're really best friends. But I've known him. I've, I think it was in him with his first ever Ari Award back in 1998. Like, oh. and then we've just grown to be. Really, really close friends. Brothers. Some, yeah, really, like family, to yeah. be honest. So when we get together, <laughs> it, we just, yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> and uh, I adore him. I was just like, you know, I just, I wanted to loosen up just a bit. And uh, I'm sure he wants me to stop <laughs> encouraging him to loosen up. <laughs> yeah, Chris is amazing. I watched him do the whole show the other day. Yeah. It is incredible. Yeah. Never misses a beat. Sings perfectly. I, on the other hand, don't do that. <laughs> But well, I'm think, going to your show. I, I think that's part of <laughs> the appeal is that he'll be fucking perfect. Yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. And I will do my best to do what I do. But I just think that there's a, there's a little bit – when it's a bit different in the way yeah. we present ourselves and how we how – we, like he, he would alert that whole musical, not only his stuff but the whole thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> On his own. That's and intense. so I, um, I learnt what I did. <laughs> the bare, bare minimum and now I'm trying to catch up going, okay, yeah, woo! Um, but look, it's so exciting. Number one, the cast is amazing. Yeah. The director, the LD, like there's a lot of production going on. So yeah. the set's pretty sick. So Can't wait to see it. It's pretty good. So yeah. I guess it's, it's kind of exciting for me because you're probably the first person I've interviewed that hasn't been – that I haven't known a really long time. Like I feel we have known each other a long time, but we don't know each other that well. At all. Via At Twitter all. I've known you, but like I don't know you know you. Yeah, right. that's really nice. That's nice. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm not going to know any of the answers to any of the questions okay. I'm asking, which is really exciting. Hit me. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me if you – did you grow up in a musical household? Did you have a lot of music around when you were little? So my mum and dad – my dad was a singer in a Christian rock band named Good Grief, which yeah. when Jesus died, it, it's good. Oh. Because it's good grief. It's sad sure. but it's good, right? So they toured the East Coast in a Bedford van and my mum was the support act in a, in a band called Key who yeah. were just harmonies. So, you know, obviously key. <laughs> so they ended up falling in love and oh. um, they got married in in the Carlingford Baptist Church in Sydney. I was born in Sydney. And then we moved to Burke to pursue um, teaching the world Jesus basically. So I lived in a very kind of conservative Christian evangelical kind of background. Okay. So I lived in Burke for a year in the floods of 83 and then yeah. I moved to Queensland in Oakey out near... Whatever that was, near Toowoomba, I guess. Okay. But yes, very musical, very much. I I still can't kick, throw, swim, tackle. I'm t- t- terrible <laughs> at sports all around. <laughs> but yes, they encourage arts and encourage singing and praising the Lord and all that kind of stuff. So wow. Uh, so you were so you were the, you had the kind of childhood where you're going to church and singing. In yes, church. every day, every 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 week at least. And yeah. I was in the choir for a while as well. But yeah, Dad was a singer in the rock. I guess at a Christian rock band, he had a little 
like one of those golf caps on and they were kind of like, they were, they were okay. They were terrible by any stretch of the imagination. It's the 70s. Everything was okay in the yeah. 70s, I think. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I was very musical household. My mum taught piano in our house from from my, the age of eight, I think, for, for students. Never taught us. Did you uh, ever want to learn? Well, I did learn, but she farmed us out. I right. think it was difficult for her to teach yeah. her own children. So we, yeah. we, I got taught piano from the age of eight or nine, um, and that was incredible for me. Uh, the piano was a godsend. And then when I watched that film, Great Balls of Fire, <laughs> around the age of I think maybe eleven or twelve, and Winona Ryder, it was you know the documentary. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a documentary. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> I think it's Dennis Quaid played Jerry Lee Lewis, and yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna play good piano like that." So I learned yeah. how to play boogie, and then I kind of stopped piano and played guitar. But that was my, you know, piano became rock and roll then for yeah. me, and it became a really inspirational instrument because That's before so then it was before then it was kind of a bit dull. And yeah, just like Bach and shit. Well, yeah, but Jerry Lee Lewis yeah. made it like, or Dennis Quaid at least, yeah. made it really fun. And then also seeing, I guess, films always in, intertwined, seeing Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future as well. Yeah. Play Chuck Berry. You, you, you have to pick up a guitar after that. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's so cool. And so um, so the first kind of music in your life was sort of Christian. Yeah, gospel. And gospel. Yeah, very much so. Like, uh, you know, On Christ a Solid Rock I Stand or any of those kind of big hymns. But then I clearly remember my dad listening to Evie by Stevie Wright at a very, very young age on the radio. Uh, yeah. I would have been three. But I remember that Stevie Wright record, like Let Your Hair Hang Down, yeah. was, uh, was a big. And that's yeah. kind of my first musical secular memory yeah, cool. <laughs> of music. That's but so I remember Amazing Grace and all that stuff from earlier on. But that's my first ever real rock and roll memory of... Cool. Of music, yeah, That's a pretty, really cool memory. It's, it's, it's a cool song and it's a cool memory as well. Did you know that when um, like years and years ago now but I was driving along with Simon and I was singing along to Evie but I was just singing evil, evil <laughs> and Simon was like, what? What are you singing? I was like, it's evil. Let your hair hang down, right? And he was like, the song's called fucking Evie, Sarah. Yeah, that's a big bow on you, Sarah. Uh, <laughs> that's good story, I think though. it's way cooler, evil. Well, I would cooler. argue that maybe that it isn't <laughs> because the whole song's about a girl and it's one part, it's in three parts. But if you change the concept to be about <laughs> evil in general. Uh, I, I get the sentiment, but it doesn't really make any sense to the verses. Anyway. All right. So back to your childhood. Right. Um, yes. So w- what age did you pick up guitar after you? About watched- 13 or 12, maybe a nylon string down at my grandparents' house. Yeah. She smoked menthol. Right. Which I kind of always tried to sneak if I could, you know. <laughs> She'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> um, but she had a nylon string down at her house in a place called Dunbogan, which is south of Port Macquarie, which is, uh, which is where we all kind of ended up. Yeah. And uh, nylon string was really easy to play. And my mum's my brother, my uncle, uh, was a, quite a, you know, a flat picker. Like he could, could do all the fancy stuff. So he yeah, taught cool. me guitar to begin with and then... Once I knew G, D and A and C and B, I think around the B same time. It was hard, man. Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> around the same time I discovered Nirvana. So yeah. it was kind of like it led into this whole, yeah, I was able to play. Nirvana had songs that were relatively more simple than Stevie Ray Vaughan or, you know, sure. extreme or the stuff they'd put in 
guitar magazines at yeah, the time yeah. with all that and tab. And as soon as you know power chords, you can play most of those. Songs. Right. But also I'd be learning tab and I was like, this is really tricky. I don't, this is way too hard for me. So when I guess those kind of bands came around uh, and Violent Femmes actually, that first album by Violent Femmes was, was massive because it yeah, sounds yeah. good on acoustic guitar. It does. <laughs> and you can still play to yeah. anyone and it's <laughs> awesome. So yeah. that was my kind of first foray into playing acoustic guitar and learning stuff and then yeah I started writing my own songs because I found other people's songs way too difficult yeah (laughs) and so what kind of songs were you writing uh well I'd write a song I was in my first band at about 15 uh, and we'd write songs like uh what was our first song? It was called Me and My Friend. It was like a little E minor, the G, D, C, little cute little ditty. I recorded on a four track actually, which was, you know, apparently a big achievement for a 14 year old. I guess we, were, we thought we were art, pop rock. We would just do weird stuff. We had a saxophonist and. Wow. We just do weirdy kind of stuff. Yeah. It wasn't very straight. We do like kind of. But then sometimes it sounded really bad Red Hot Chili Peppers as well. <laughs> so you'd be like, sometimes it's really cool, sometimes it's like really bad funk. But you go to a. Break game, you're like, bah, 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 bah. I'm like, why did we do that? But I'd listen to Red Hot, what's it called? Blood Sugar Sex Magic as well, yeah. like every kid did. So, yeah, a bad kind of influence on my <laughs> no, it was a great music, but I could not play like that. So, uh, they was, have a lot to answer for. Well, yeah, but I can't play like that. Like, I, I shouldn't even have attempted to. <laughs> they do have a lot to answer for. <laughs> you, were you trying to play a slap bass? Oh, no, I was just trying to do like John and. <laughs> it's really difficult. He's like a virtuoso. Yeah. I was a 14-year-old. That's not going to happen. So, but yeah, so Dancing with Daisies in a Meadow of Corruption was my first band. What? It was called Dancing with Daisies in a Meadow of Corruption, which is wow. my first band with my sister. That's and so great. <laughs> it's pretty funny. And my really intelligent bass player friend Rowan. So the, we, we, we won a battle of the bands when we were really young. I was like, yes, we won. What, where big, were you living then? In Port Macquarie or Warhope, yeah. in the oh, north yeah. coast of New South Wales. And so that was exciting and um, we got to record and hence now I, I can reference all those songs I'm talking yeah. about because they were actually recorded. I can think about all the daggy moments and really <laughs> shit guitar sounds that when I When was the last time you listened to those songs? Oh, I haven't listened to it for a long I think Fiona, my sister, has listened to it. More than I have recently, but I haven't listened to it in years. But it's pretty bad. <laughs> you should listen to it again. <laughs> no, no. I just know there's all – it's like – I think back in the day everyone thought the Zoom effects pedal or something, that weird kidney-shaped effect was yeah. going to make everything great and it just made everything really bad. <laughs> and so what I, I walked in there with a great guitar sound and the, the engineer was like, maybe you should use this. I'm like, okay. And it, everything's delayed and phased and I'm like, oh, my, this is the worst. <laughs> Um, so yes, that's my that's my. Was it like the days where um, everything was through chorus? Yeah, I remember yeah, that yeah. thing, big thing when yeah. I was in high school. Massive chorus, Just massive chorus. phaser, yeah. like a bit of delay, distortion, yeah. made your guitar sound like a spaceship, basically, <laughs> which is totally the wrong. Yeah, thing wrong to do. vibe for yeah. what you were going. Well, for. The, for anyone, let's be honest, <laughs> like it's just like a wrong vibe. And so. Um, so what happened then? You you played and did you play live in that band? A little bit, like we do little little gigs. We couldn't get many gigs because we were underage, obviously. Yeah. Um, and then I moved other over to, I guess more boy, more mum, alpha male bands. So I left my sister's band and then joined like a kind of a grungy band and then kind of a pub rock band. I played guitar in the pub rock band and and sang in the grungy band. Okay. Around around the same area and then. I ended up 
after that, I moved to Lismore with the grungy band. We yeah. moved, um, The grungy band all moved to Lismore when I started uni. And then the, <laughs> the guitarist and bass player left Lismore because they were like, we don't want to play, we don't want to be in Lismore. And we instigated Pat and Joe yeah. and that grungy band became Grinspoon. So cool. the, 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 they learnt, Pat and Joe learnt all the grungy band songs yeah. from Port. <laughs> and they were playing all these really weird 7-8 kind of, yeah, woo! And I was like, well, okay. So And then we started Grinspoon out of the ashes of a band called Crabapple named okay. after the Simpsons' uh, Bart's teacher, Mr yeah. Crabapple. Oh, that's cool. Which jeopardised, totally ripped off from yeah. us, P.S. <laughs> the worst podcast in Australia. Come on now. Real name, He's Kevin. actually my, my favourite podcast in Is Australia. Really? Kevin and I did Josh a dual Pi- podcast. I was, How does that I, work? Well, he came on mine and told a story and okay. then we continued it on his. Oh, okay. Um, yes, Kevin actually asked me before, like two months ago to do oh, his podcast. No. And I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, can you do it by Skype? I'm like, I can't even spell Skype and there's no way I could do – I want to be in the room with you. Like I, we, we, Kevin and I have known each other since 1996. Yeah. I can't imagine talking to him over – maybe I can, but like I just went, no, I'd rather – and then you've got in and I'm in Brisbane. So hi. Oh, no. Hi, hi Kev. Kev. Sorry, uh, Kev. <laughs> that's okay. I'll do one with him too. But <laughs> it happened – yeah, it just happened this way. So Yeah. All right, what were we talking about? So Grinspoon started. Yeah, out of the ashes of Crabapple, I would move to Lismore to do university. La, what were you la, studying? Uh, music composition. Ah. ah! <laughs> and were you playing piano and no, stuff No, I then? was just basically, no, I was just learning how to compose music. Ah. So I got in kind of from my original compositions. They judged me on the songs I'd written from the age of whenever to whenever. Grunge songs. Well, no, I was doing pop stuff as well. Like I was a... Bit of a songbird. I liked a lot of different stuff. Yeah. My favourite at that time was Lou Reed and, oh, you okay. know, I kind of went, yeah, so there was a bit of different shit going on to be honest. But, yeah, but yeah, there was some grungy shit <laughs> as everyone had. But I guess they judged me on what I'd written yeah. over the last four years before I got into there. So got in there and then I realised that a lot of the people in that course were doing it to write songs of praise. I was like, oh, my God, I'm surrounded by Christians. This is going to drive me bonkers. <laughs> and uh, also then I'd met Pat and and Chris had introduced me to Pat and Pat was a massive stoner. Like he'd be like two cones every morning. Whoa. I'd be like, all right, well, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm going to move into his house and start a band with him. Yes. Or maybe he invited me but I forget how it went. But we ended up. Writing more than you are in Sick Fest very early on, I think, and those songs that kind of got us unearthed. Yeah, and then it kind of was it just happened really, that really was it. kind of wasn't it. We went on tour, we got assigned to an independent, and then we we toured a lot with like Def Effects, the Mavises, Screaming Jets, who would pay us five hundred dollars a show back in nineteen ninety five. Wow, five hundred a show, pretty amazing. It was massive, man. Yeah. They, they they actually paid for our second EP. Yeah. No doubt, like they did. That's really unheard of back then because I remember some of the tours Sekidin did, we were getting such shitty money. Shitty money. money. And we, we, we'd have to tra- travel. We were in Cairns or I call it Cairns, sorry, Cairns <laughs> or like <laughs> towns of Rockhampton. So we'd be travelling but they would give us 500 a show that's and awesome. that's a massive amount of money. So we were able to save up and record our second EP, Liquor Bottle Cozy, 
which had Champion on it and post Nibiru Anxiety and songs that people know from Guide to Better Living. Hopefully they do. And uh, <laughs> that got signed us to a major label. That got us signed to a major. So Yeah, right. And what, what major was it? It was, it was actually a subsidiary. So at the time, Sony had Murmur, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Universal wanted to copy Sony, so they called their label Grudge. Does it sound like grunge? Oh, I don't or grunge that. in South African? Yeah, I, we, we, no one was on it except for us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we signed a grudge, and it was a little garage, little um, logo. And uh, our first EP was on them, and I think our album, maybe our first record, was on them as well. Okay, and then you went to the major. Well, that was a major. They were just but pretend- you left the subsidiary and went. to No, the- it was still. It was all bullshit. Like, yeah, right. It was like. It was like Murmur and Sony. It was never, there's never, like, that's all That's all garbage. Yeah. Anyone thinks it's a subsidiary, it's not. It's just. It's the same. They're, they're pretending. Yeah. Back then they were pretending. Yeah. Like, nowadays it's totally different. But yeah. yes, back then they were like, we need to pretend we're sub pop. <laughs> but we're totally fucking a massive label. So, so you fell for it back then. No, no, I, was, I needed, we needed money. I was on the doll. Like, I yeah. didn't, you know. They, Did you get a s- sweet advance? Oh, not from them, but our publishing, we got a sweet advance. I yeah. blew that fairly quickly. But, like, uh, back then it was a bit different because we'd been we'd been working really hard and we recorded a really good product in our opinion. That's a weird word to say. We recorded some really good songs. Yeah. And then they gave us a little bit of money but a little bit of advance to record our uh, debut record, which we recorded in Byron. And um, I don't know, they just... Maybe they were opportunistic because I think they saw the groundswell of Silverchair living in Super yeah. Jesus Jebediah and all those bands that were coming out at the time. Yeah. And maybe they saw that as a, us as being marketable. I don't yeah. know. And maybe looking back at it, they probably fucking did. And that's the smart, you know. Yeah. But there was a massive Australian scene. Recovery was happening. That's right. Magic Dirt were happening. There was some great, really, really inspiring bands. Tumbleweed were massive at the time. Powderfinger were coming through. The Gurge, like... It was it was kind of yeah, a bit of a romantic honeymoon period of Australian totally Australian rock and roll. So we were we were on the end of that. We we kind of came out around ninety six ninety seven to be successfulish. But there was bands leading the way from Spiderbait on a go go in nineteen ninety two, and and you and mine ninety one even. I think yeah, this, that's right. This kind of paving the way for this incredible nineties movement, which we were lucky to be a part of. Yeah. Um, and Kevin spoke a bit about. Um, a lot of record labels back then being obsessed with, like after Silverchair blew up overseas and everything, they were obsessed with signing the new Silverchair. Right. Did you feel like you were no. sort of subject to that? No, because we, we Silverchair did, well, no, I, I'd, be ble- I'd be very flattered. But <laughs> Silverchair were a kind of, uh, if you listen to Silverchair's first record and, and the, the subsequent records, there's not a lot of uh, there's musical things that we have in common. And same with, Jebediah, I think. Yeah, I think it's more as it like as oh, a, the vibe, the vibe, or yeah, I don't know. There's or just the success. They want the success. They want the again. success. They're yeah. chasing that ten million albums yeah, first yeah. record, which only happened again with Jet, I believe. Yeah, I don't know. They only happen every once a decade. Yeah, um, that's but true. we never. I never felt that when we finally toured the states, which which we'll talk about later. Yeah, they really were pushing us to be. I guess that kind of band, but we were just too misbehaved. Like at at the time, Silverjay had their parents on tour. Yes. But yeah, we didn't have parents yeah. on tour. <laughs> I was nineteen, but like yeah, I was, you didn't you know, need I didn't have parents. Oh, I probably did need a parent, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
yeah, I was uh, a bit of a hot mess, I guess, in any stretch of imagination. So. Do you think that part of you being a hot mess was, were you trying to fight against your upbringing a bit? No, like I, no rebel I, I, against I, it? I don't think so at all. I, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure why. I was, I, you just wanted to have I, fun. I considered myself a, li- a little punk. Like, I just yeah. didn't give a fuck. Yeah. And so the whole instigation of the American label signing us direct and putting out our first EP or second EP and whatever and, and Guide to Believing and putting us on tours with Anthrax and That's so crazy. Life of Agony and Vision of Disorder and we're going first and we did like a, a 40 date tour through the States and oh my goodness. I'm just like, I, I just don't know what, because I'm not, they were very heavy bands and at yeah. the time I'm, think, I'm thinking I'm in blur. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I'm, they might be heavy but I think I'm, Damon, I think I am singing blur melodies, you know, and I was just like, I just don't get how this works. Yeah. So that was your second EP that you you got signed to an American label. So the second EP got released here, Liquor Bottle Cozy, which had Champion on it, which was this kind of ended up being some weird anthem for people that wanted to be a champion. But that EP ended up getting, yes, that got released in the States, exactly the same artwork that we'd kind of done here. Because I thought it was authentic, <laughs> of course. And then Guide to Better Living got released there with some slightly tweaks on the production, you know, some kind of heavier. They tried to really make us, they wanted this metal radio or like kind of like, they didn't want us alternative rock, they wanted us to be heavy. But I was wearing nail polish and lipstick, so every time you go into like Arizona radio, <laughs> like, hey there, boy. <laughs> hey. Hi. Uh, so it was a bit of a dichotomy, I guess. It was just weird. It was just strange to be marketed that way and yeah. them knowing that what they were going to get, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And also I was really kind of anti it in a lot of ways. But, yeah, and um, you, wanted, you were just singing pop songs in your mind. Well, in my mind. Obviously they were heavy <laughs> and I'd yell a bit but I thought that still I'd be like, you know, I was dancing and having fun and thinking that that would communicate something but. And also we were just on the cusp of Fred Durst. Yeah. And that ruined everything, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways for, for anything rock, anything mathematical in rock, yeah. even, you know, Helmut or Mark Kane. They kind of took what they were doing and just ruined it. Yeah. So we were, we were just before that and then Marilyn Manson came around and that's when we, we had to bounce. We were like, we, we, you know, this is just not us, you know. <laughs> So how did Anthrax audiences react to you? Oh, they didn't like us much. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like us. They, they said to me, you kangaroo fucker. Oh, really? Yeah, one time. Yeah. Oh, that's not very nice. Yeah. Uh, they, <laughs> Hopefully they, they, that was a term of endearment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They didn't even thought of that before you actually said it, you know. Like, yeah. Right. That's like a high school insult. But that was in Jersey, so, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, it's Jersey's a bit like high school, I guess. <laughs> So um, how long were you spending overseas? We did about 18 months all up, I think. We bought a, ourselves a car there and we travelled all through Canada as well. So we'd done the planes and driven across there with different bands. And Tragically Hip, I think, we played with. Like what? We, From it, Canada? Yeah, yeah, and I think No Means No as well, like a great Canadian awesome, yeah. awesome punk band. So we were, we were privileged in that respect. But in, in America, the the label really wanted us to... It's every it's it's a shoebox of everything. Yeah. I can even reckon when the Hoodoo Gurus were touring and they got put into college rock, they were like, "No, we're rock." Yeah, you know, they were yeah. like, you know, and they were college rock. Yeah, and we were. I think we were heavy metal or hardcore radio or whatever the fuck. Wow, which that's we are weird. so not. Yeah, at all. But um, 
that's where they put us. And you say you're having a pretty weird time. Yeah. In so then we came back and recorded Easy, which is a, a direct like that album is all about, or well, a lot of it is about America and yeah. how it was just a bit of a weird experience. Yeah. You know. And so, what was happening in Australia for you guys at the time? Uh, I think the Guide to Bed Living was doing really well. We yeah. released the fifth single off it while we were overseas, wow. and uh, it just kept perpetuating itself. And then we went to the UK and record. We we recorded Black Friday, which was an interim EP. It's called Pushing Buttons. Black Friday, more than you are, got re-released. And then we did some songs, outtakes, and it was called Pushing Buttons. We came back into a, the Pushing Buttons tour she had here. Yeah. That was epic. It was great. We were doing like Sutherland Entertainment Centre and, you know, like wow. Manly Youth Centre. And uh, well, we toured with she had a number of times, I think. The Pushing Buttons tour we did, and the, she had to release an EP called Blue Light Disco at the time. I think Test Eagles might have been the opening, opening back. <laughs> wow. Jeez, this is really bringing back yeah, so, teenage uh, memories. This is back in that late 90s uh, Australian music era. But, yeah, so in between America and Australia, we were doing a bit of that stuff basically. Yeah. So from what I remember, so, I, you know, I think I was just sort of finishing high school around this time when, when you guys were blowing up. And I remember seeing you guys on recovery and thinking you guys looked pretty cool. I did. I, don't, I can't say the same about the band. Well, I don't think anyone looked at anyone else, to be honest. Like, I think that, you know, you had, like, such a presence with, like, your floppy hair and your eyeliner and stuff. There's big um, glasses. I used to wear really, really big glasses on recovery. There's some ones I wish I'd kept, to be honest, because yeah. they looked so good. But, yes, I was a bit of a – I did my best, basically. <laughs> I really did my best. So, I guess I sort of wanted to ask you – I know it's really hard to answer – but when you're when you're writing songs, do you how do you start a do you do you start a song in different ways every time? I think it has to be that way. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it'll be a lyric that you just think. I always my opening lyric is kind of what I go to first. I think I've got better opening lyrics than any of my choruses. I, I believe uh, because I think the opening line can be. It kind of sets the tone. Yeah. Um, but then sometimes it's music and often that'll be a collaborative effect with, with Pat or Joe yeah. who write the music sometimes. And sometimes they come together. Sometimes the, the you'll be playing something and then the, the music will will just like Heart Act to Follow, which I wrote, came together. Like it was, yeah, I don't know. It just it's came just out of nowhere. I know so, it's hard to talk about. No, it's just like I think Chris Martin from Coldplay says it best. <laughs> What did he say? Well, I Phil? think he talks about like it just exists in the ether. You don't know yeah. how to you don't know how to explain it. And there's probably be- people who have spoken about it better than he has. I think it exists the same way for every songwriter. That just yeah. exists up there somewhere. It's a bit spiritual and weird for me, but yeah, I think it is for everyone. But you know, I just sort of want to ask questions about um, maybe not where they come from. But do you always do you always write on guitar? No, piano as well, but I, I, I'm not as workmanlike as some other writers, I don't think. Like I, it tends to come to me a little, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not say easier, but it just sometimes it just pours out. Yeah. Where I, I see other people really labour over, over songs. Maybe yeah. I should labour over them a bit more. <laughs> um, so yeah, I write a piano and guitar. It's yeah. kind of in, in between. I'm writing more on piano now because I've. I think I've done my dash with guitar for yeah. twenty years or so. And do you write different songs on the like? Can you? Yeah, you have. It, it's yes. 
how do I explain it? It's just different. Yeah. Yeah. So you you write differently. Yeah. On there. Um, I always find when I um when I play guitar because I I'm not the kind of person that can go like oh, I'm gonna play a diminished sixth or whatever. I don't know what that means. No. But um. Neither do I. But you know, like I don't with guitar, I don't really know where I'm going. Like if I move my hand, like if I'm playing, even if I'm playing bar chords, I can't really hear where I'm gonna go. Whilst with the piano. It's a little bit more. It's a little easier for me because I've been playing it longer. Maybe a bit more intuitive, I yeah. guess. I, I find the guitar to me to yes. I, I try to make up chords on guitar as well. Yeah. I'm writing more on piano now, but I just I think there's still great songs on guitar to be written as well. Yeah. It's just it's just a bit of a different thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let me ask you about collaboration. Oh, yes. I love these. So tell me about – so you said you started collaborating with your bandmates in Grinspoon. Right, yes. Was that straight away? Like when yeah, you were first starting? Yeah, well, they starting? were pretty – like I'd met – like Pat and Joe were kind of the shredders of Lismore. Yeah. Like I'd, I'd moved in – I'd moved my band up from Port Macquarie Crabapple and these shredders had joined my band. Yeah. But they'd replaced – and so they were well-known around Lismore. Pat was already pseudo-famous. Joe okay. was as well. They'd appeared on records. So they'd both either graduated uni or dropped out. They were yeah. older than I was. And so they would come, they already had kind of thoughts about where they wanted to be and what they wanted to do. So they, it was good. They, they, they had their own guitar strings, yeah. amplifiers. I'd been That's used important. to lugging everything in my combi to, to band rehearsals. It yeah. was like now these guys would turn up with everything. Yeah. Um, and also songs and pretty good ones. So, yeah, the collaboration would start immediately. And also I was writing as well and it was all drop D. You know, if you weren't writing in drop D, you just you wouldn't even be invited to rehearsal. <laughs> so you just transpose everything to drop D at the time. Yeah. And it just became a natural thing. I could write melodies quickly on the fly, which I guess satisfied them a bit. Yeah. Whether they knew what I was singing or not, they didn't really know. They didn't care. But it, it gave their songs some... Energy and, and, and importance just to hear someone singing on them. Yeah. And so that's what I did early on and they became they became songs. And I, I just flesh out the lyrics and that's cool. And work it out later. And did you ever just write lyrics on the spot that yeah, you then like kept? Yeah, like Pressure Tested 1984 or Dead Cat Three Times were all just done in the studio, of course, yeah. What's that, What's that about? Dead Cat? Yeah. It's about going to the rehearsal... So, okay, so I'm watching Drugstore Cowboy at home in Walling Bar, which is on the top of the hill of Lismore. Yeah. And I'm driving the combi. I had a white combi. I loved it. I blew it up. Sorry, Dad. (laughs) Um, I drive down to the rehearsal room in Lismore and on my left-hand side I see a dead cat. I'm like, fuck, that's really sad. Yeah. Someone should pick up that fucking cat. And I've just seen Drugstore Cowboy and Drugstore Cowboy, if you haven't seen it, is all about a hex and a cowboy hat. Anyway, I realise two kilometres down the road I've left my fucking lyric book and weed at home. So I'm like, okay, I have to turn around. I really hope someone's picked up that fucking cat because it's going to really make me upset if I have to see it a second time. Go past the cat, it's on the other side of the road. I'm like, dead cat two times. Fuck, (laughs) this is going to kill me. Go home, pick up the lyrics, pick up the weed, whatever the fuck. Get back in the combi, go, fuck. But I have to get, I'm running really late now. And Pat, like, they're, I was the youngest in the band, so they were like, fuck, yeah. So like, I've got to get there. I'm really late. <laughs> I want really hope someone's picked up this cat because uh, <laughs> this is not going to work out for me if I get, if I have to, you know. So I drive past, I'm like, ah! 
Take out three times. Shit. Drive to rehearsal. He's doing the riff. Gang, 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 gang. Gang, 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 I'm like, okay, well, here we go. Dead cat three times. It seemed to be really well, that natural. That makes so much more sense to me now. <laughs> it's, it's a really sympathetic <laughs> song about someone not looking after a dead cat oh. on the fucking road. Oh. That's kind of a nice story now. Well, I don't know uh, what I thought it was before. <laughs> I just thought it was silly. <laughs> it is really silly. And actually, Richie from Tumbleweed, when I first met him, I adored. I adored him and he was being a bit like, you know, I guess Liam Gallagher. He goes... Does that mean it has another six lives left? I'm like, Aww. then I tried to explain to him what I was to said to you. You know what? You know what happened? And he was like, I don't <laughs> want to listen to you. I'm like, but you know what happened? He's like, no, nah, I'm not bored with you now. I'm like, but Richie, I love you. <laughs> so speaking of um, musical heroes, did you did you actually like tour with people in Australia that sort of took you under their wing? Or was it sort of a different... It's a bit of a different, different world. Yeah. yeah, it was a different world. So the bands that I love, like Tumbleweed and Spiderbait and UMI who are, yeah. and Magic Dirt, yeah. who I all adored, when we started, we weren't cool enough to tour with them. So we weren't we weren't a Melbourne band. So yeah. we could never... Or Sydney. So we toured with the Screaming Jets and Def FX and the Mavis's. Yeah. Like we weren't ever able to tour with our idols or peers in that respect so we never got to see how they operated and they were my magic that was my favorite band and tumbleweed my favorite band but i never got to tour with them yeah i never got to tour with regurgitator either and i love them like fucking love them so um we were kind of touring we were dagging we were just a off off as a side band okay we, 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 this is around 96 97 mid 90s yeah. but we also because we're from lismore yeah. so we just didn't have we weren't in melbourne Chasing Bruce Mill from Orgogo for, for show. <laughs> we, we just weren't doing it. We, yeah. we just didn't have that. Man. Like we, we were pretty daggy. Yeah. And we, we were just taking what we could and and do our shows and and try to save up and make more music basically. Yeah. It wasn't – it was pretty DIY. Um, and we weren't we, – our first ever support really, like a big one was Roland's Band in 95. Wow. yeah. And we did the play, uh, the playroom on the Gold Coast, yeah. and those kind of those kind of rooms, and yeah, that was a pretty scary tour. But that was our first ever big kind of like tour. We were like in awe of of the headline, yeah. And the, and the Jets and Def FX were, were were good, and they gave us money, but it wasn't like we were supporting bands that we loved, like Tumbleweed, or yeah. We I don't think we ever support supported them at all, and yeah. I loved them so. Yeah, right. We supported the heart. We played with the Hardons and Frenzel. Yeah. Like all those bands that were kind of, well, not Hardons, but Frenzel and us came up around the same time. Yeah, that's ish. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and back, you know, I guess back then we, we were still considered a punk band. So you seem to be pretty prolific. Like Grinspoon recorded tons of albums, it seems. Seven. Seven. Hmm. Did you feel like you grew up with that band or did you feel like you were sort of in the party zone the whole time? Oh, no, no, no. Like I felt there's a bit of party zone there but it was also, yeah, I had to grow up at some point. There's yeah. no doubt about it. But I don't know whether it was party zone or not. It was just... It just sounds and like it is. And maybe it's just the music too. It just <laughs> sounds like you guys are always having a good time. Well, we had a good time but I, I don't know whether the music was... Taken very seriously by the other people in the band. Yeah, me not so much. I was just like I'd, I'd waltz in and do a melody on something, and I'd, jag, I'd often jag shit all the time. Yeah, like there was, <laughs> I just jag it, and so I got lucky many, many times over many, many songs. Yeah, that became sort of pseudo hits, 
just by just saying something that kind of came out of the blue, but it just ended up being it ended up being right, yeah, and fit it. So I guess I don't know. I, don't, I guess I grew up, but I it was just always the way it was. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, really, that's so cool. It seems like you guys were really in the right place at the right time a lot of the time. Yeah, we got lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, well, also like I'd played in bands previously that, that were really talented musicians, but you know couldn't didn't have equipment. Or yeah. didn't, couldn't facilitate the drive, their own maybe. existence, you know yeah. what I mean? So that's pretty cool that you're all sort of on the same... You never had any lineup changes, did you? No, but meeting Pat and Joe facilitated this kind of, I guess, sense of professionalism about their own instruments, Yeah, which sounds wanky, but... No, that's really important. But it is important. Yeah. And they brought a sense of a real specific notion that this was going to be the band they wanted to... Make really big, yeah. And me as I joined when I was seventeen, I couldn't give zero fucks. I thought, well, <laughs> there'll be plenty of bands after this. <laughs> Hello, woo! Got a writer, um, and then it became this thing. And also, when we entered Unearth at the first Unearth competition, like Pat was convinced we were going to win. I'm like, we're not going to fucking. Who gives a shit? I didn't know what Triple J was because I'm from Warhope. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we're going to win this. I'm like, well, even if we do. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. Because I don't even know what it means. Is this a big deal? Uh, and it, obviously it was. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask you a couple of like biz questions? Sure. When did, did you get a booking agent? Straight oh, away? This is a good question. So we, no, we didn't. We, um, we recorded our first EP with Oracle Records, which is a green EP in... In Brisbane, we used to play Crash and Burn a lot, you know. And then we, I took it, me and Pat took it to Michael Harrison at Frontier in about November 95 and we presented him with the green EP. We are like, can you please be our agent, please? And he goes, look, guys, we've got the super Jesus. We think you've got something but not right now. <laughs> so me and, me and Pat walked back to the fucking van. We'd driven all over from Lismore. And then we're like, no, we, we don't we don't have an agent. We're like, okay, fuck. So essentially we didn't have an agent until about 1997. Uh, maybe Owen from New World Artists or Trading Post, as he was originally known, who's still my agent to this day, wow. would would not verify that. But I think it's around 1997, which wow. we got our first booking was, agent. Had you recorded your first album by then? Around at the same time, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think Owen came on. And he's still the same agent. I've worked with him for, what is it, 20 years now. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Okay, so. It took us two years to get an agent. But we begged Michael Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> but he had the he super like, Jesus, nah. so fuck you. <laughs> okay. I was like, we're nothing like them. Like, yeah, that's a really strange thing. Like, I, think he re- I think he was just thinking, like, in general, and this is no, you know, he's great, whatever. But, like, he was just thinking what he needed to fill his roster. Yeah, his roster and, was And full. he was like, okay, yeah. we don't need any more of this shit. Yeah. Which he didn't know it was going to blow up. In 95, no one really knew that recovery was going to have a yeah. renaissance. No one knew that Living End were about to blow up. Yeah, there was yeah. just this kind of, in the mid-90s, there's, Jebediah, like there was this huge thing, and it actually is inspired by Spider Bait, Magic Dirt, UMI, Hoss, those those really early '90s bands yeah. that came before all of us. That were still we're very close in age, but there's about three or four years difference. Yeah, that really inspired everyone to pick up a guitar. Yeah, for sure, and make good music. So they're all responsible, really much for, and a bit martyrish in some ways <laughs> for, for our success. Yeah, um, but yeah. 
Oh, they, I mean, they all influenced me a lot too. I yeah. think they influenced every kid yeah. that was into music. Yeah. It was I mean, such it a was, magical time. It was a, a really, really good time. Yeah. But then I've obviously seen the flow on to becoming, you know, when recovery hit and then major labels, they became commercialising these these basically bands from the suburbs yeah. or regional areas. Yeah. Girling's another good example That's of that. Right. You know, so these bands that were, were basically, we were all pretty much punks in a way, in our own little e- ethic Ethos is like the way we treat it. It was all DIY. We wrote songs that might be more considered for the masses, but we pretty our heels were pretty dug in. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah, that's and, a nice way to put it. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. It wasn't like I think I see a lot of things nowadays that people complaining about. Yeah, I guess streaming or Spotify or whatever. I'm like, yeah. well, did you get into this to make money or did you get into this for love? Like, exactly. I just don't, I don't understand. Well, know. I think I, I've reached a certain point in my life now where. There's no reason to make music for me except because I like it. Right. Because it gives me, it brings me joy to write right. songs or it brings me joy to perform. I mean, I wish I'd written Sorry by Justin Bieber. I think it's a banger. And like that sounds sure. like a, it sounds great to you me. You got Bieber fever. Well, <laughs> that Sorry is just like, <laughs> what? Like, I love that track. I'm not going to deny it. But my thing is, I think that, you know, the cream will always rise to the top in some ways. And Sia, let's say, yeah. uh, Sia, Sia writes great songs. And, you what about, know. What, what do you mean, not Sia? Well, Sia writes great songs <laughs> as well. I just mean streaming. <laughs> I just mean streaming. How dare you? I'm in trouble. <laughs> Um, okay, so another biz question. Yep. At what point did you sell your publishing? Do you oh, remember? Yeah. So maybe 1998. Uh, okay. Shock, Shock Music Publishing offered us X amount of dollars and a vodka and orange. I made it sure it was in the contract. <laughs> really? Back in those days I was That's drinking. such a rock and drink- roll move. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Back in those days I was demanding vodka and orange for some whatever reason because I was like 20. That's amazing. <laughs> And it's in our contract. We we saw him meet Mr. Wilson. I forget. He was a subsidiary of Shock, uh, Mr. Wilson. So we signed with him okay. in 1998. After after Guy Did a Living kind of went gangbusters, yeah. Just Ace went really big and stuff. Yeah, so. yeah. So that That's was a publishing deal. We signed about 1996 with Universal for a seven-album or five-album deal. Yeah. Okay. So you fulfilled your deal with them. Yeah, and then we did another two with Dwindling Returns. <laughs> and did, who released those? Well, we kind of – they still released them. They were kind of kind oh, okay. enough to put them out by distribution. Yeah. Uh, but you paid for them and stuff. Sort of. Uh, yeah. It's uh, it's a bit of a grey area. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. I think there's a bit of give and take. Like recording albums by the time it got to 20 – 10 or 2011 was so much cheaper than it was in 2001. Yeah, for sure. I think in 2002, whenever we recorded Thrills, it was the most expensive record. Yeah. But nowadays you record records for so much cheaper. So I think yeah. we, we might have paid for it. Maybe they helped out. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not really sure. And were you recording onto tape and stuff? Or have yeah. You always, yeah. Yeah, the first record, the first two records were tape. Maybe the first three. Actually, the first three records were, uh, three records were tape. Yeah. Wow. And yep. then you went to Pro Tools after I that? I think so. I yeah. think Pro Tools was 04, which is the Thrills Kills Sunday Pills record, uh, which was a bit of tools, a bit of tape. But then, you know, you still like – the last one really to tape, honestly, was Easy, yeah. which is our second album where we were splicing drum cuts with, with Razor. Wow. Yeah. Matt Lovell, who's worked on lots of records, did that record, yeah. That's was, crazy. Yeah, splicing a simple yeah. hit. Sticky tape. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty rad. But it's cool. Right? I can't I, fathom how people know how to do that precisely. Well, they did it and he yeah. did it. And I, they've done it, it for years great. beforehand. So Wow. Mm. 
that was a pretty messy record as well. We were <laughs> a bit of a hot mess. But it was still really, like, it's one of my favourite Grinspoon albums just because it's so honest. So were you all a hot mess? Uh, I just think that we were just a bit burnt out from the US. Yeah. And we were a bit disillusioned about what our band was. Yeah. And, you know, how we were perceived and... Or just how we got along with each with, with each other. We, yeah. we we forward a bit, and it's just difficult being in a minivan or whatever the oh, fuck you were so in. Hard, you know what yeah. I mean? And traveling that way, and we'd had our own little fights and breakups or whatever. So it just, yeah. Oh, it's that's why I love that record. It's just really fractured and weird. Yeah. Out of all of them, and also Alibis is a bit weird as well. But. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that one just just sticks out a bit to me. I love all the songs on it too. So you, know. you can still listen to it without going. Oh, I, I, I still cringe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, there's just there's something about it that just is magic. You know, like, yeah. I love the opening song and I love the second song. Then I love the third song. I'm like, oh, this is pretty badass. By the end, I think we put seventeen songs on it again, Holy like crap. You, you would do back in the nineties. Yeah. Um, and just cram them full of stuff. But um, you're too prolific. No, I don't think it was prolific. I think it was like, I think you just, oh, maybe, I don't, maybe it was a punk rock thing. Maybe you put a lot of songs on records. Oh, yeah. Maybe we just didn't have long songs. I don't know. We just, yeah, the, I, we, we didn't listen to our producer. We were like, fuck you, we can put that on as well. But, um, <laughs> it's always clever. Was, I think it was even a hidden song on that record as well, <laughs> about 18 songs long. Um, uh, that's the best. I think that was a real 90s thing, the hidden track. Yeah, there's a few. There's a, we did a few <laughs> hidden songs. We tried to hide a song at the start of a CD. Oh, so yeah. So you'd have to go backwards. I remember Super Furry Animals did yeah, it. Yeah, they did that. And we're like, we want to copy that. Yeah. Like, we didn't have the technology here. If that was meant to be new detention. <laughs> yeah, we never end up doing it anyway. Yeah, I think Sekiden had like whale noises for twenty minutes after our, after our last Lovely. song. Lovely, <laughs> such a dick move because it was like, you know, if it was in a CD shuffler. Someone would just be listening to whale noises for twenty minutes. Oh, and well, maybe calm super down. annoying. <laughs> so you're the first person I've actually researched a tiny bit, just okay. because you know I just don't really know that much about you. Okay. Um, so I saw that you did some work to raise awareness for mental health issues. Sure. Do you still do that? Sure. So I'm an ambassador for Headspace in the mid-north coast of New South Wales, but also, uh, back in, I forget the year, 2013, maybe 2014, I did a ride, motorcycle ride. Yeah. We went from Gold Coast to Adelaide and stopped in every Headspace centre. Headspace was a relatively new incentive from the, uh, the federal government. Yeah. Introduced by Julia Gillard, I believe. Um, and what I found, because I lived in a regional area as a kid and uh, I found that the stigmatism attached to this is is pretty gnarly. Like people don't talk about it, you know. Jimmy's upset, we won't talk about it. So sure. I just I think it's really important that the youth know that something, someone's there for them and yeah. somewhere that you can go and get a GP appointment and get um, contraception you can be looked after mentally because yep. my point is if if you hurt your knee while playing football that's bad but if you if you're feeling mentally unwell as well it's just it's kind of a two-way street yeah. it should be treated the same way it should be yeah. yeah so that's my whole thing about it so just raising like letting the stigma down raising awareness as the older i get it doesn't make as much sense because i'm you know i'm turning 40 this year so 
I don't know whether that it, it strikes a chord as much as maybe Guy Sebastian or even ASAP Rocky going there. You know what I mean? I think it would be more important for younger people to do it to make it feel more effective in those yeah. communities. I still um, think that it's really important for anyone in the public eye, though. Sure. I, but, it's but, really but great I'll, that you do that. Thank you. I just, I, I'm very aware of my <laughs> currency and <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's important that uh, the people that in the public eye that are yeah. in, in that age bracket really do encourage it. Yeah. Um, because it is an amazing service that they do. And also there's a bunch of other services as well. But Headspace specifically... Um, yeah, really passionate about. That's awesome. So you're an avid motorbike rider. Yeah, well, not for toughness because I can't. <laughs> like everyone thinks, I guess it's kind of a cliche that motorcycles, you know, rock and roll. Like it's not about. I'd I'd ride a fifty cc motorcycle. I don't care. Like I like bikes. Yeah. But it's more about what it does to me mentally. Like it helps my mental health to be alone and. In it within a helmet. Yeah. Um, can't listen to music or anything. Yeah. And can't it's do no one, you know, I just feel very like everyone else. And I feel that that helps me. Like yeah. Some people play golf, some people surf. Yeah. I would putt around on a scooter and feel the same way as if I was on a Harley. It's not about the actual engine size, it's about how I feel riding and yeah. just by myself. And that's, that's lovely. So that's, that's what gets me. That's why I thought it worked in well. With mental health and yeah. you know, what I got out of it. Yeah. Um, but yes. Um, so I wrote down a couple of questions that I was interested in asking you, which I never do. I'm normally just, uh, you know, just shooting the shit. But um, here we go. Just quick questions, quick answers. Sure. Uh, do you get lonely when you perform solo? Yes. Uh, do you like your fans? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Like, cool. I that's fine. <laughs> Do you get stage fright? Yes. All the time? No. What's the circumstance? This. Great. American idiot. <laughs> or this podcast. <laughs> I got terrified the other day. Yes, I do get stage fright. Yes. Um, who are your musical heroes now? Now? I, I don't think they've changed. Uh... I think the there's a holy trifecta of Bowie, Reed, and uh, Pop. Yes. Which I think they're the they're like yeah. the, they're like the, they're the trifecta. Yeah. And one out of three <laughs> left. Right, but they're kind of who would have thought it would be Pop? <laughs> right, <laughs> but they're like my trifecta, and I think you know, obviously the Beatles and the Stones and Barry and Helen Wolf and Louis Armstrong and you know where do we where where, where do I begin? Where do yeah. I stop? But yeah, it's a tricky one. But. There's a trifecta of pop and Bowie and Reed I like to always go to yeah. for my favourite yeah. all-time songs and th the way they perform as individuals and the way they physic physically gave themselves to music, yeah, yeah. whether it be Reed smacked out just holding his glasses or with Bowie with his functionality as a, a make-up thing or as, as pop just being, you know, just pop. Yeah, so pretty amazing. I think, I think they're, the, they're the holy trilogy. And you can definitely me. tell that those three people have been through... The fucking ringer. Like yeah, they've been through a but lot. But also they make great music. They and, do. And they, but it's they, part of it, you know. They write, they have somewhere to write from. Yeah. You know? I, I, people, I mean, Dylan and Cohen and those kind of guys, are, I love Dylan and Cohen. Yeah. But 
for me to say that would be a bit highbrow because I'm I'm essentially a, I'm a bit of a showbiz guy. <laughs> so I think those guys were all a bit pretty showbiz. Yeah. And Lou Reed was highbrow, so was Bowie. But I yeah. think for me to say I love Dylan and I love Cohen. Yeah. Do you get uh, asked I, to do a lot of those I tribute shows these no, days? No, they wouldn't come to me. They they always Why? go. They always used to go to Josh Pike or they do go to Josh Pike. All those kind of people. Um, real name Bob Evans. Um, <laughs> Uh, those kind of people, but like I, I do, I do the white album basically yes. ex- exclusively. <laughs> That's, all I That's do. it, just the white album. Because I Who, love that. So record. that was Chris, Josh, and Tim and I. And Tim well, we and got it tattooed all together. That's right. And I cried. Oh. It's it, tattoos really hurt. <laughs> people that are listening, don't ever get Is that one. Your only one. That's my only one. I bawled. I was oh. like, I'm never getting another one again ever. <laughs> I don't care who wants me to get one. It's hurt so much. <laughs> It's a waste of time. <laughs> That's a good message. Don't do it. <laughs> um, so I guess what I want to ask you, and I ask this to every guest that I have in here, what's your strangest show or just the strangest thing that's happened to you because you're a musician? Right. So it's 1997, maybe 1998. We've just finished, Grinspoon have just finished a tour of the States and we got to New York uh, to do a show at CBGB's, Legendary Club, obviously. Pat and Chris have gone out to Flash Dancers, which is a strip club. Uh-huh. Cool, whatever. Me and Joe have gone to the hotel, Joe and I. Um, we think that that's a bad idea. Joe and I think that's a bad idea for them to go there because CBGB's is the only time we will ever play it. Yeah. As you will hear later. <laughs> Anyway, so we get to the gig and they are highly inebriated, highly inebriated. And there is a recording of this show somewhere. Anyway, so we get through the first song and it's okay. And then at the back of the room, you see the tallest person arrive and it's Tim Rogers. Yes. At that stage, I've never met Tim Rogers. Okay. Pat's never met Tim Rogers. <laughs> Joe's never met Tim Rogers. And we... Everyone fucking loves Tim Rogers, yes. right? He's he's the shit, <laughs> and he's at CBGBs watching us. Might have been four in the afternoon. I don't know. It was a fucking tragic gig. <laughs> anyway, Pat starts losing it, like can't play. Chris falls off the back of the stage. Oh no! Off his like, you know when your stool might be your drum stool might be right near the edge, yeah, and it just accidentally on purpose tips over. Yeah, he falls off. <laughs> I'm like, holy fuck, you guys, can you... And this is me because I'm usually pretty loose. I'm like, all right, all right, lads, come on, let's fucking... Let's get to the end of the gig. So they get back up, they do the end of the gig. Anyway, at that stage, uh, CBGB's had a male toilet that didn't have any walls around it and just a cubicle with no walls around it. Walls yeah. around it. And Pat, this is my last memory of Pat that night, sitting on the toilet fully clothed saying he's going to quit the band. I'm <laughs> Like, you're not quitting the band. Have a line, you fucking idiot. Everything will be fine. And uh, so then we ended up meeting Tim uh, maybe five, ten years later or something. And we reminisced and Tim adored the show, uh, you know, because it was so It was just drunk. shambles. Was such a shambles. He's like, I loved it. I'm like, well, we hated it. We were so embarrassed. And that's my. Uh, that's pretty spectacularly shit. Like, I mean, as far as trying to impress someone that you all loved. Well, we didn't want to impress anyone. But when he turned up, 
And he's so fucking tall. Yeah. Well, compared to Americans. Yeah. Um, I've actually listened to that rec- the recording recently of that CBGB show. It's come up in the ether. Yeah. Like in the past year or so. And it's actually pretty good. So. Oh, there you go. Not as bad as you <laughs> I think. think. I just think by that stage we toured so much. Yeah, you even. Could hit, you could hit a button and we would have been fine because it's just kind of like cruise control. We we yeah. played so many shows. If you get us together now, we would have been really, really poor. <laughs> but yeah. That's a pretty great story. CBGBs. CBGBs. Hey, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, Phil. My pleasure, Saya. I can't wait to see you in your musical. American Idiot.